Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 11, uh, looking uh, actually for the second time at this passage, and we'll look at it one more time before moving on. But I want to encourage uh, you that this passage uh, we could spend four or five or six months on itself. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 14 sermons from these 11 verses. You're getting off easy. So read with me Romans 6, verses 1 and following. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, again, we ask you for your spirit. We've confessed already this morning that this process by which we are made increasingly holy, by which we are sanctified, is accomplished by your word and your spirit, not one without the other, but both together. We have your word, we must have your spirit. And so grant your spirit to press the medicinal value and qualities of this your word deep into our souls for our comfort and encouragement. We ask this, that Jesus might be praised by us. In his name do we pray, amen. You may be seated. I do not have uh, statistics for this. I don't have numbers for this. Uh, We're a Statistics, conscious culture, we think about numbers. Some of you probably watch or listen to National Public Radio and you hear the Marketplace Report and you hear Kai Rizdahl saying, let's do the numbers. Well, I don't have numbers for this, but as I've thought back over 30 plus years of ministry, I think I, think I can say with some confidence that there are a couple of questions that I get more than any other questions, more than any Uh, single or any two questions, and they both have to do with evil. They both have to do with evil. 
The first one is kind of the big one. It's one of the big ones. How can a good God allow evil to exist? That's a question that's asked by Christians, by non-Christians, by people of faith, by people with no faith. It's a challenging question to wrestle with. I think there are answers to it. The other question, though, is, is in a sense much more personal. Um, and this question tends to come to me from Christians, actually. And the question in one form or another is essentially this. What about the evil in me? What about the evil in me? Here's what tends to happen, it seems to me. Again, this is thinking back across 30-plus years of ministry. People who have a growing and deepening sense of the truth, of the beauty, of the wonder, the goodness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. People who have embraced that have this question, why do I still sin? Why do I still sin? And beneath that question, it seems to me, there's another question. People who have been Christians for 10 minutes or 10 years or a half a century, there's another question that's beneath that question, why do I still sin? And that question is this, how can God continue to love me? How can God continue to love me when I sin the way I sin? And the sin can be something um, impolite, right? The kinds of things, the behaviors, the attitudes that we don't talk much about, or it can be just this relentless and incessant struggle to believe what Zach said before he read Psalm 111, that God really is good and he really is good to me. It can, it can cover the whole range of those things. People will ask, how can God love me? How can he accept me? How can he delight in me? How can he smile at me when I continue to sin? And then that leads, it seems to me, inevitably to this next question. Isn't there something that I can do? Right? Isn't there something that I can do that would compensate Compensate for my failure. Compensate for my unbelief. Compensate. Isn't there something that I can do that will make God like me more? Make God accept me more fully? Make God love me? You see? Why do I keep sinning? How can God continue to love me when I do keep sinning? And that seems to me to lead inevitably to this other question. Isn't there something I can do so that God will in fact love me and accept me and delight in me? I don't know a Christian who has not wrestled with that trifecta. There's some friends worshiping with us this morning who shared the other night that they've been reading a book about Jonathan Edwards. Some of you know the name Jonathan Edwards. 
regarded by historians, Christian, non-Christian alike, as the greatest philosopher, theologian this country has produced. Reading a biography of Edwards, they read about Edwards coming to true faith in Jesus, coming to believe really with his believer, not just knowing with his knower, but believing with his believer that Jesus is everything that the scriptures represent him as being, loving and compassionate and the savior of the world and embracing him as the savior of the world. And then some months or years later, finding himself, Jonathan Edwards, big brain, greatest theologian philosopher the world has seen, maybe, certainly in America, in the fetal position on the floor of his home, wrestling against his own indwelling sin. Wrestling to come to terms with it, come to peace with it. From the least to the greatest, I don't know a Christian who has not wrestled with that trifecta. Why do I continue to sin? Does God still love me? Isn't there something I can do? And I want to suggest to you that this passage, we looked at it last week, but I want to suggest to you that this passage is medicine for those souls. This is a sermon for tender consciences. This is a sermon for people who are afflicted. This is a sermon for people who struggle with this. And this passage, I believe, gives... Deep medicine. Let me give you three pegs again, three points, three pegs to hang this passage on. Slightly different from last week. We'll cover some of the same ground, but drill a little more deeply and press a little farther beyond. Here's three things. I am different if I am a Christian. I am different. Second, I am marked as being different if I am a Christian. I am different. I am marked as being different. And third, I am to think differently of myself. I am different. I am marked as being different, and I am to think differently of myself. I am different. I am different. Someone asked me before the service this morning, how are you? I said, not tongue-in-cheek, most seriously, I am better than I think I am. I am different. If you are a Christian this morning, if you've come to that place where you've stepped across that line, you've, you've, you've come to terms with this stuff, you've said, I don't fully understand it, I don't know how it works, but here are two things I know. I know that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Deep in my bones, I am, I know that I'm helpless and I need something outside myself to save me. If that is you this morning, you are different. Listen again to the things that the apostle says about you, about your identity, about what has happened to you. Listen to what he says in these first six verses. He says that you have died to sin, verse 2. He says, verse 3, that you have been baptized into Christ, that you've been baptized into his death, that you have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
That meaning, if you've died with Christ, if you've been buried with Christ, you have been raised with Christ that you might walk in newness of life with Christ. You are different. Remember the imagery that he uses from last week. In chapter 5, we refer to this. In verse 6, we know that our old man was crucified. Some of you have self in your translations. The word should be man. The old man was crucified. And if you understand that in the context of Romans 5, verses 12 and following, you understand that what Paul is referring to there is Adam, the first Adam, the one through whom sin and death made their assault upon the world and ravaged you and everything around you. Adam is your head. Adam is the progenitor of the race. Everything that is true of Adam, everything that comes into the world because of Adam, flows to you. It may not seem like a fair system, right? Why should I suffer? Why should I be plagued? By sin and death and bondage, slavery, the kinds of things that Paul talks about in this sixth chapter. He's using these metaphors and these images of dominion and domination and absolute control and lack of freedom. Why should I suffer because of what somebody else did? Let me just suggest to you, it's woven into the fabric of reality. It's woven into the fabric of reality. It is the way life is. My kids, I love my kids. Any parent loves his or her children. My kids suffer things because they have two fathers, me and Adam. Me and Adam. I suffer because of Adam. You suffer because of Adam. My children suffer because I suffer They suffer because they're my children. I'll give you their phone numbers. You can call them. It's woven into the fabric of reality. And before you dismiss what is the downside of the nature of reality that we suffer loss because of Adam, take a look at the cross and understand that you suffer gain, inexpressible gain, incalculable gain because of a second Adam. Because of the last Adam, Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15. Through the first Adam, this assault is made. But through the second Adam, by virtue of union with him, I am disconnected from the old Adam and I am connected to a new head. And just as sin and death flowed to me from the first Adam, so from the last Adam flow righteousness and life. Righteousness and life flow to me because of the second Adam, the last Adam. The old man has been crucified. He has been killed. I have been disconnected from him and I have been connected to the last Adam, the second Adam. Now think about this. Think about some of the images that you see and that you find in the scriptures. Think, I mentioned Lazarus last week. Think about Lazarus. Think about Lazarus. Here is Lazarus, dead in the tomb, powerless, helpless to do anything for himself. Folks, 
Jesus performs miracles not just to show us his power, but to teach us about ourselves. That miracle is performed to teach me about me, not just to teach me about Jesus and his power. It's there to teach me about my utter and absolute helplessness and how it is so necessary for some power outside of me to bring me back to life. Paul uses that imagery in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy made you alive in Jesus Christ. We live under the illusion that we are alive, but we are in fact in our natural condition dead. I mean, this is tragic, folks. I had a conversation with a family member not long ago trying to talk with a family member about the gospel and the hope that there is in the gospel. And every attempt at that conversation was deflected. Was deflected. How do you account for that? Why wouldn't someone embrace this incredible notion that the beauties and glories of the new heaven and the new earth and freedom and liberation, freedom from shame and guilt and the forgiveness of sins and everything in between, eternal life, offered as a free gift. Why wouldn't someone accept that? I was told of someone this last week who didn't heard it, heard it for years, heard it for decades. But then sometime in, in his 40s or 50s or something like that, embraced it. How can you go hearing these things for 40 or 45 years, 50 years, and not say, give it to me. I want this. I must have this. Life is short, and then you die. How do you account for the fact? Because a person is dead apart from the life-imparting power of Jesus Christ. And the only explanation for the fact that anybody is a Christian at all is that God in grace and mercy and with sovereign power has made the dead to live. And so Lazarus, who was dead, is summoned forth out of his tomb and he comes out, as I said last week, wrapped in grave cloths. And Jesus has to tell those who are witnessing this thing, they don't know what to do. They know that touching a dead person makes them ceremonially unclean. Even being in the proximity of a dead person means you can't go to church without going through a whole bunch of rituals. They don't want to be hanging on to a dead person. Jesus commands them to unbind him. Unbind him. Let him out. He, see, here's the picture. Here is Lazarus who is alive. But what is he struggling against? He's struggling against the residual presence of death. He's trying to get free. He needs people to get him out, to help him get unbound. What's my point? A Christian who comes to me and says, I'm struggling. A Christian who comes to me, a person who comes to me and says, I, my sin is driving me crazy. I want to say to that person, praise Jesus, hallelujah, thanks be to God, you are alive. And I don't say that tritely. The best evidence that you really are a Christian is that you're leaning against and struggling against your own sin, that you find it increasingly demoralizing and disgusting.
that you find yourself occasionally like Jonathan Edwards does in the fetal position on the floor of his home. Having contemplated great thoughts of God, he is imprisoned by the anguish and pain of his own sin. Dead people don't respond in that way. They don't care. They don't care. The first thing I want to say to you is if you're struggling with this problem of sin, indwelling sin, it's the best indication that you really are a Christian, that you're just like Lazarus. You've been brought out of the grave. You just want to get free. You just want to get free. That's what Paul is saying to us. He's saying the old man was crucified, put to death. And there is something new that has been imparted. There is a new connection, a new attachment, a new union. And because of that union, life is flowing into what was dead. Living things struggle for life and they struggle against death. So who are you this morning if you're a Christian? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, you are a new creature. Anyone who is in Christ, boom, new creation. The old things have passed away, the new has come. You're a new creature. You have a new attachment, a new head. And from that new head, life is flowing to you. That's your identity. That is who you are. And here's the second thing. This is what makes baptism so significant. I am different and I am marked as being different. That is what baptism does. It marks you this morning as being different. Let's, let's just be clear about what Paul isn't talking about here. He's not addressing the mode of baptism. That's not in his mind. He's, he's not concerned at all about the amount of water that's used. That doesn't matter to him right here. He's also not concerned at this point about the subjects of baptism. Who properly should submit to baptism? He's not concerned at this particular juncture about whether it's appropriate or inappropriate to baptize children. What he's concerned about, the children of believers, covenant children, he's not concerned about that. What he's concerned about is the significance of baptism. And baptism becomes for Paul in this passage a metaphor, a picture of being marked differently by virtue of union with Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, in effect, as he writes to these folks and encourages them about the gospel, encourages them that every one of these blessings, being dead to sin, being buried in Christ, being raised to newness of life, being united to Jesus, being set free from the prison of Adam and liberated into the prison, if you will, or the freedom of Jesus Christ, all of these things are signified by baptism. There are at least three things that are going on in Paul's mind as he uses this word. First of them is just simply the formula, the basic baptismal formula that he would have been aware of and which Jesus left with his disciples in Matthew 28 when he commissioned them to go into all the world. You remember he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the world, baptize, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them. And the word that's in the text, a really important little word. The word literally means baptize into. Baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of imagery that Paul is using here. He uses the very word. We have been baptized into his death. That's consistent with Matthew 28. I said to the folks on Friday morning at the Refuge Bible Study, you know what the gospel really means? It means relocation. That's what it means. It means being transferred out of one realm into another realm. It means being removed from one realm into another realm. We were baptized into his death, and that then leads to his burial and his resurrection. United to Jesus, in Jesus. Baptized into the strong name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As you know, we're working through, some of you know, we're working through Ephesians at the Refuge Bible Study. We did a little exercise. This is so interesting. I mentioned this, alluded to it last week. We did a little exercise in, in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. I said to the folks, I'm going to read through this passage. You count the number of times you see these phrases. In Him, in the Beloved, in the Lord, in the heavenly places. How many times? Fifteen times in the space of 12 verses Paul is reassuring, reminding, encouraging the Ephesians that they've been moved from one location into another location. And baptism is the picture of that, the image of that. There's a second thing that I think has to have been in Paul's mind as he thinks about this. Baptism is something that somebody else does to me, right? And that's consistent with all of the verbs in these first six, ver- six verses. I looked it up this last week. I checked them out. Every single one of the verbs in these first six verses is in the passive voice. Do you know what that means? This is really significant. If I tell you I ran to the store, that means one of a couple of things. I either, either I literally ran to the store or I hopped in my car and ran to the store. But if I say, I was taken to the store, you rightly conclude that I didn't get myself there. Somebody took me to the store. Paul is using verbs in these first six verses that are in the passive voice. In every case, this is something that has happened to someone, not something that someone has done to himself or herself. And baptism perfectly illustrates that. It captures the imagery of it. Okay, I'm going to wander off into a little side meadow here. Frankly, one of the reasons the imagery of baptism is wonderfully conveyed in the baptism of infants is because, precisely because, they have no idea what's happening to them. They don't initiate it. They don't ask for it. It is done to them. I love that. I'm not arguing for it, you understand. I'm just illustrating something here. Passive verbs captured 
in a passive activity. You submit to baptism. Why? Because of everything that it signifies. All of these things that have been done to you that you cannot do to yourself. Dead to sin. Buried in the ground. Raised from death to newness of life. All of these things happen because God, who is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, has killed you, buried you, and raised you to newness of life in Jesus Christ. And here's the third thing. Third thing that I'm convinced is in Paul's mind as he writes this to these Romans. And it comes actually from 1 Corinthians 10. You know, you, you learn things about how Paul thinks about things by reading his other letters, by looking other places. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 in the first couple of verses as he is writing to the Corinthians to encourage them about who they are. To encourage them about who they are writes this, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. What is Paul doing? He's encouraging these Corinthians to look back to the lesser Jesus. He's encouraging them to look back to Moses who came into Egypt for one purpose, to be a deliverer and a redeemer and to lead a people out of slavery, out of oppression, out of bondage, and to lead them through the Red Sea waters Waters of deliverance for them, but waters of judgment for the Egyptians, leading them through those waters so that they would come out on the other side with the promised land right in front of them. That is a baptism. That is what Paul has in mind. The greater Moses has come, and when he came into the world, just as Moses came into the world, he came for you. He came for you. He came to rescue you from your oppression and slavery. He came to, came to deliver you from that bondage and to lead you through waters of judgment safely so that you emerge on the other side with the promise of the new heaven and the new earth out in front of you. Are you in a wilderness? I am. I am wilderness of my own stinking soul. The wilderness of this tragically cursed world. It's beautiful. It retains so much evidence of the goodness of God. It's a wilderness. I've stopped using the word transformation. Here's why. I want to save big words for big things. I was talking with a friend last, this last week on the phone. He said, we're agents of transformation. I said, nah, what we are, Rick, is agents of hope. 
Is there a transformation that's underway? Yeah. Is there new life that's been imparted? You bet. You bet. But there is something bigger and better, and you can't calculate how much greater and bigger it really is. That's transformation. What I am right now is an agent of hope seeking to convey that hope to people whose souls can be wildernesses and who live in the midst of the wilderness of this world, saying to you, you belong to Jesus. And baptism signifies that you've been led through judgment waters. You've come out on the other side. You are secure and safe. And he who brought you out will take you home. He will lead you home. That's in Paul's mind as he thinks about baptism. And you, then, who belong to Christ, have been marked as being different. And that's why the confession, our larger catechism, will say, will encourage Christians to improve their baptism. How do you improve your baptism? You think about it. You reflect upon it. You seek to understand it. It's not an empty ritual. It is something which has had tons and tons of historical redemptive content poured into it. You are marked with the sign of God and God sees that sign. He marks you as belonging to himself. And he says to principalities and powers in heavenly places, this is mine, this belongs to me, you tamper with this at your risk. You can't see the mark, I can't see the mark on you, but your heavenly Father knows who has been marked, and you are marked as being different and belonging to him. And the powers of hell trifle with you at their own peril. I love that. So you are different. You are marked as being different. And third, you are to think differently about yourselves. Five minutes. Hang with me. We have been in this book since August 2nd. 2009, right? 16 months plus. We have plotted our way through five and a half chapters. 148 verses. This is very significant. It was pointed out to me by one of the commentators. Five and a half chapters, 148 verses, 16 months. This is the first time in Paul's letter to the Romans that anybody is admonished to do anything. Do you get the significance of that? For five and a half chapters, it's all about God. It's all about what he does. It's all about what he has done for you and in you. And the first thing you are admonished to do, this is the first thing on the to-do list, right? So many of us, when we hear sermons, we think, I, I, you know, I'm moved, I'm affected, I, I have to go do something, I have to go change this, I've got to create a new schedule for my life, a new list of do's and don'ts, I've got to go do, do, do. Paul says, no, no, no. 
Don't go do, do, do. Stop, stop, stop. And consider, consider, consider. And keep on considering. That's the sense of the verb. Don't do it once. Keep on doing it. Keep on looking back. Keep on reflecting. Keep on considering your baptism. Keep on considering that you are a new creature in Christ, that you are different, that you have been raised from death to life, that you've been set free from slavery. Keep on reflecting. Why? Why? Because, Romans 12, 1 and 2, in view of God's mercies, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You need to be persuaded of things that are true of you that you don't believe. I need to be persuaded of things that are true of me that I don't believe. We need to seek to persuade each other of things that are true of us that we find it incredibly difficult to believe. That God loves me apart from merit. And that the whole reason for his sending Jesus into the world is not so that Jesus could persuade him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Jesus comes into the world because the Father loves sinners and wants sinners free. That's what I'm supposed to consider, reflect upon, and keep considering and keep thinking about. I've got so many illustrations of this here. I'm just going to share two of them with you. And then we'll close. This is a wonderful passage from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a little conversation that he imagines with the devil. Some of you know this. When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner, therefore you are damned. Anybody ever had that happen? Voices whisper in your ear and say, you're a sinner and therefore you're damned. A day doesn't go by, probably an hour doesn't go by that I don't hear that voice. You are a sinner, therefore you are damned. We can answer him and say, because you, devil, say that I am a sinner, therefore I shall be righteous and be saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. No, I say, for I take refuge in Christ who has given himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me as you try to frighten me by showing me the magnitude of my sins and to plunge me into anguish, loss of faith, despair, hatred, contempt of God, and blasphemy. In fact, when you say that I am a sinner, you provide me with armor and weapons against yourself so that I may slit your throat with your own sword and trample you underfoot. For when you remind me of my sin, you remind me of my Redeemer. Who has taken to himself every one of my sins and paid the penalty of the wrath of God in my place. Therefore, when you say I am a sinner, you do not frighten me. You bring me immense consolation. What is that? That is Romans 6.11. That is Luther considering, considering, considering again and again, looking back at the cross and understanding that through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he's passed through judgment waters onto the other side. He is safe. Never, ever to be threatened again. 
Let me read another one. I've asked permission to do this. This will take a minute, but please bear with me. I've asked permission to do this. Some of you will connect the dots, but it's incredibly tender and incredibly honest. It's not 16th century. It's 21st century. It's this past week. I used to make sandwiches in my mind when I needed to change the subject. If I was going down a path of fear, will Tom make it home tonight? Maybe he died. Will Oliver live? Is there a bad man out there to rob us? When my mind would begin to run, I'd start making a huge sandwich. What kind of bread do I want? Hmm, cheese on that? Let's talk about every veggie possible. Some people play baseball in their heads or start naming people in alphabetical order. I made sandwiches, and it really has worked. I had to make a lot of sandwiches in Oliver's pregnancy. My mind was wild and slamming all over the place. My questions for God were angry and rampant at times. The out-of-control feeling felt out of control. Sandwiches would bring me back to reality, to a place where God actually was. My mind is a system of godless wormholes just waiting to suck me in, isolate me, and slickly ask, is God really here? There was a need to break the cycle. There was a need for sandwiches. So here I am today, carrying a baby boy with the same cysts his brother had, the same fears, the same pain, yet I'm not making sandwiches anymore. I'm confessing. The Lord has graciously grown a new reflex for me. My mind drifts. I daydream the fear-filled And suddenly I'm confessing, confessing to the Lord that I have just gone to a place that he, where he does not exist. Confessing I think I could do a better job at being God. Confessing I do not really believe he wants good for me. Confessing there is another way than through the God of the universe. As quickly as I am in that place of fear, in talking with my creator, I am back back to weeping with him instead of isolated from him. What is she doing? She's considering. She's reckoning. She's thinking. She's talking to herself rather than listening to herself. She's taking herself in hand. And this is the most courageous thing that a person can ever do. Take yourself in hand, refuse to listen to yourself, and speak to yourself about things that deep in your bones you know are true. That God is good. All the time. And He is good to you. All the time. He loves you as his child. He is more concerned about your sin than you are. And he has united you to his son that you might be freed from its power. And even at the end of your life, its very presence. Consider and consider again and keep on considering. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we are different. Thank you that we are marked as different. And give us grace. Give us grace to think differently about ourselves and about one another. For you have made us different. 
We pray in Jesus' name.